stand again. Where are we at? Where are we at, music stand? You'll find one. All right, great. Thank you, Maddie. All right, good morning, guys. It's good to be with you one final time. We got a lot of work to do this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to start off finishing up chapter four. There's a lot of treasure in chapter four I want to uncover with you. A lot of things that are super relevant for our own lives and for you as you go back home. Then I want to end with a a charge, a challenge for all of you, those of you who are following Jesus, those of you who are still on the fence, or those of you who are straight up like, I don't want anything to do with Jesus, got a challenge for you. Then I want to help you come up with a rough idea of how to come up with a fight plan on how to come back. Thanks, Maddie. Uh, How do we continue to grow once we come back from camp? And then finally, I want to end just rejoicing in how Jesus is better than Jonah throughout the book. So that's kind of where we're heading. I hope you're ready. You guys ready? Ooh, man. Rough. All right. You guys are tired. All right, well, let's pray because we need the Lord. Father, everyone's tired. I couldn't sleep last night as my heart was just processing through what you've been doing this weekend and thinking about these students and these faces. And Lord, I do know that my thoughts towards them are nothing compared to how many thoughts you have towards them. You know them intimately. You know them more than they know themselves. And you are loving. You're pursuing them. You care about them deeply. And I want to serve them and love them well as you love them. And I know that every single one of these students have complicated stories, complicated situations, different doubts, different pains, different questions, different hopes and dreams and strengths and weaknesses and all those kind of things. And and there's no way that within the sermon I can cover every little aspect for each one but I do know that your Holy Spirit can. So I pray your spirit would work in each heart. Would you waken us up? And not just physically, but spiritually. Let our hearts be awakened to you, into your voice, and your voice would be the loudest. Not the voice of the serpent, not the voice of their neighbor, but your voice through your word. Empower me, Lord, to, to speak and preach right now your word and nothing but your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, I want to remind you, we were in chapter 3, <clears throat> and it's going to be on the screen real quick. Sorry, that's, those are just personal notes. Would you read this out loud with me? When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil. Come on, this group. Come on. Some of you leaders. Come on. Come on, counselors. Oh, the shame. Some of you counselors aren't even reading. All right. Well, your students will only go as far as you go often, so come on. All right. Now, what's the whole point here? The whole point here is that God forgave the unforgivable. He relented from them. And one of the things that I really need to highlight is if you do not find God's mercy and his grace, his forgiveness, scandalous and unbelievable, you still still do not get it. If you do not if you are not shocked that God would forgive you, you still don't, still don't get the, the wickedness, the depth of your sin, and how much we all, including me, deserve judgment. And you know, every time I do youth camp speaking, one of the most regular feedbacks I get from students and from counselors is, Sam, you feel so relatable. And it's not because of my ethnicity, it's not because I'm eight, my age or that I'm 33, but I look like I'm 21 or 16. Asians just, we just don't age, man. We don't age. You guys know what I'm saying? And then when we're like 60, we look like we're 500. You know, it just, it goes real fast. It's not because of any of those reasons or because I'm funny. I'm not really that funny. I'm only kind of medium funny, right? You guys are, you guys understand this about me. But you know, one of the reasons why I think that students often can connect with me is because I legitimately believe I need this gospel. I legitimately need God's forgiveness and I need his transforming grace in his, in his mercy. I don't feel like I'm better than any of you. I don't look down on any of you. I have compassion for you because God has been very compassionate towards me. And, and that is really what the end of this book is supposed to do in us and call us to. See, Jonah is shocked at God's mercy and forgiveness towards Nineveh, and he should be. He should be. Do you believe that? Any of you last night feel a hatred or just just a a sickening feeling towards the Assyrians as I went down explaining what they're like? Anybody felt that? 
okay? And then when you hear God's forgiveness, it should be like, that doesn't set right. And, and that is a scandal of the mercy and forgiveness of God. Now look at how Jonah responds to this forgiveness. Chapter 4, verse 1. Do you read with me? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He was angry. This displeased him exceedingly. Remember what they were like? Do you honestly blame him for feeling this way? Do you judge him for feeling this way? Remember, this is Israel's mortal enemy, and in just a generation, they're going to come and slaughter northern Israel. And this is the kind of people we're talking about. We can understand why he's so angry. But here's the thing. Jonah's anger is partially right. What I mean by that is that even last night we saw that the king of Assyria says he, will, he may relent from his fierce angry, anger. Should God be angry towards the Ninevites? Yes, emphatically yes. Yes, he should be. But the difference between God and Jonah, Jonah is feeling righteous anger towards their sin and towards Nineveh. But the reason why Jonah is not God is because Psalm 30, verse 5. Would you read this? For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. God is rightly angry, and Jonah is rightly angry towards their sin. But the difference between Jonah and God is that God is eager to forgive, eager to extend mercy. And we're going to get in a second to one of the most pillar passages in the Old Testament in Exodus. And what you're going to see is that God's heart is tilted towards mercy, bent towards grace. Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, we see his heart. Jonah's heart, and he prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Finally, we know why Jonah fled. We, Jonah did not flee from his commission, his mission that God gave him because he was afraid of getting hurt. He wasn't afraid of the king of Nineveh. Those weren't the primary motivators. His primary motivator is right there. It wasn't that he was afraid of the Assyrians. It was afraid that they would receive mercy. He was afraid they would receive mercy. He hates the Ninevites so much that his greatest fear is not losing his life, but that they could potentially not lose theirs. This is the level of deep hurt and hatred he has towards his enemies. There's a lot to learn here. There's a lot to learn here. Now, I just want to make a side note. Some of you guys think we go deep in these sessions. I, I'm just skimming the, the top. I, I'm not going deep with you guys. You're not, most of you aren't ready to go deep, and because this is a camp, we can only do so much, and that's fine. That's, that's the limitations of any camp. I just want you to know there's so much more here, and it kills me. I have to cut so much from my sermons. You think I preach long? I preach like 40, 40 to minutes to an hour with you guys. I could go four hours. There's so much I cut. And I say that to say this, not to shame you, to challenge, but to say, guys, there's so much more God wants to show you of himself. So much more here if, you, if you're hungry for it. And that for me, as a speaker, I'm just trying to whet your appetite. I'm just trying to get you saying, oh, there's more? Yes, there's more here. And you can't be dependent on the speaker to give you everything. You, we can't give you everything. We, we're so limited by our time. But there's so much more here for you to go yourself with your own youth group, with your own family, with your with your with your pastors, and so I just wanted to share that there is so much I have to leave out, and it kills me. Now, Jonah is actually quoting back to Yahweh uh, something that Yahweh said about himself, okay? So if anyone has ever repeated your words to you, you're like, hey, you, you said this, Sam. That's what Jonah's doing, except Jonah is conveniently leaving out some realities, some important pieces, now, Jonah is 
repeating Exodus 34, 6. This is one of the most important passages. This is something we went over in summer camp, talking about God's character. This is one of the few times where God just unloads and shows his heart and what he's like. So if you have a Bible, your own Bible, you just, I mean, highlight, underline, laminate this, tattoo it. So this is a really important passage. So would you read it with me? The Lord, this is God's spot. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just give you idea. Context is important. Never read just one verse. Know what's going on. Um, Moses is on Mount Sinai with Yahweh, and Yahweh is revealing his heart to him right after Israel uh, committed unbelievable spiritual adultery on him, worshiping a golden calf in Exodus 32, calling that Yahweh, and there's a whole backstory. Read the book of Exodus. Okay, so 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Notice how much in this passage about his heart is tilted towards grace and forgiveness and mercy. Do you see that? But you see this one line at the end. No, no, there's more if you read the whole context. I don't want to mislead you. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, if you have your finger in your Bible or if, the, if we could go back to, to the original Jonah 4.2. Look at Jonah 4.2 on the screen if you go backwards. What does Jonah conveniently leave out? Look at the very end. What does he leave out from Exodus 34? How is he misquoting God to God? Not clearing the guilty. Do you see that? Jonah lists everything about God's character and his love, but the one thing he leaves out is that God is a God of justice. He will by no means clear the guilty. What does it mean to clear the guilty? It means that when someone's guilty, a good judge doesn't say, you're innocent, right? We all understand that intuitively, that good judges, good justice calls the wicked guilty and calls the innocent innocent and clear. And, and, and so what, what God is making very clear about his self-disclosing of his character is saying that I do not let the guilty go free. I won't let them be called innocent when they are guilty, in which why we talked about last night at semi-length, there's so much more to the gospel. Man, I, I just gave you guys the little bitty milk of the gospel last night. But to understand that that's the reason why God can count you innocent is because he counted Jesus as guilty. And Jesus volunteered for that. And forever, those of you who are trusting in Jesus, he treats you like you live like Jesus did. He counts you, considers you as righteous and innocent, even when we are not. That is the scandal of the gospel. So what is Jonah doing? Jonah is accusing God with his misquoting of God, that God is not a faithful God. He's not a good God. Because all he is is just lovey-dovey, mercy, mercy, giving it to whoever, but does not care about true justice. Does not care. Because remember, from any metric possible, when you think about the situation, the Assyrians should not receive forgiveness, should they? And so Jonah is feeling offended by this. Jonah is upset at God that God is not being faithful to be just. And so he only highlights the mercy of God and conveniently leaves out the justice of God in that passage he quotes to God. But like I talked to you about in multiple sessions now, a good God is both. A God of justice and mercy. And you need him to be both. You cannot have him just pick one over the other. And that is one of the dangers, is that you can almost make the Bible say anything you want. Jonah misquotes God, and all of us here can be tempted to do the same thing. Listen, just because someone is preaching from the Bible doesn't mean they're preaching the Bible. And I want you guys to put your youth pastors on alert, put your pastors at home on alert, that you're going to be reading and checking their work. You're going to be looking at the context. It doesn't matter how persuasive they sound or how passionate they are or how many degrees they have after their name. If they're not actually teaching you what God's word says from the original context, they're not teaching you God's word. And so I want to really challenge every one of you students to go to church with your Bibles, have them open, 
Never read one verse. Look at the context and know what, what, what God is actually saying. Because just like Jonah, lots of preachers and lots of Christians will find different passages to excuse, to twist, to edit, to, to make a point that they want. They will abuse and misuse the Bible to fit their own agenda. You just watch Christian TV for a few minutes and you see this happening all the time. So I want to challenge you to be someone who has their Bible open, looking at the context. Youth pastors, I hope that encourages you, but hopefully it makes sure that you're vigilant and you're not lazy. And this is, this is oh man, I'm going to do all these, I got to stop. I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop. All right. Jonah feels like God is in the wrong. He's wrong to give his enemies mercy. They don't deserve it. And Jonah's not wrong about that. And yet, as we've been going through the book of Jonah, who is the most guilty person in the book? Jonah. Jonah's the most guilty person in the book, and yet he cannot extend mercy towards his enemies. If God wasn't merciful, then who wouldn't be alive? Jonah. Any of them but especially Jonah. Jonah has benefited from God's mercy, and yet he begrudges God for extending that mercy to those he's not okay with. He's okay. Just like I said the other night, we all love God of justice. We just don't want justice on ourselves. We want justice on our enemies. And God and Jonah is so happy to receive the mercy of God. In fact, in chapter two, remember in the belly of the fish, he is praising and thanking God. So he's okay with God's mercy but not mercy for his enemies. See, it's easy to celebrate God's mercy for us, but what about our enemies and your enemies? We want grace and mercy. We want a God of love, right? God is a God of love, but what if he loves your enemies? What if he loves that girl that just slandered you behind your back and lied about you on social media or told lies about you and you heard they backstabbed you? You want God to show show them mercy? What about that person who's been bullying you for years? What about that parent who's abused you, neglected you? You want mercy for them? What about your political enemies that you look down, whether you're on the left or the right politically or somewhere homeless in between? You want God to show mercy to Trump? You want God to show mercy to Biden? You want God to show mercy to Putin? You want God to show mercy to yourself? But what about them? Mm-mm. Nope. And if you're in that boat, I really challenge you to be honest with yourself. But if you're in that boat, you still don't get that you don't deserve mercy. You still don't get how unbelievably merciful and patient God is with you. See, when we see ourselves as undeserving receivers of great mercy and grace, then what that produces inside of our hearts is a heart of mercy and grace towards others. The most forgiving, loving people in the world that I know are those who know how much they've been forgiven. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And when I meet Christians, so-called Christians who are not forgiving, who are ruthless in their heart, politically, online, and, and, and so quick to just, just fire and brimstone towards other people, I, I, I have a very high suspicion that they don't know the gospel at all. If you know a Pharisee in your life or you're a Pharisee where you're constantly looking down at other people, snubbing your nose, oh man, you guys are so, such sinners, you guys aren't reading your Bible like me, you're not coming to church like me, you're not doing all these things, then you do not know the gospel. You do not understand the gospel yet. When you understand the unfathomable grace and mercy towards you, it, you cannot help but extend mercy and grace towards other people. So what God has done to you, he then wants to do through you. What God has done to you, he wants to do through you. Now let me get get into this rant. This is a really important grant. What I'm about to talk to you about is something called grace-based New Testament Christianity. Okay? What I'm going to explain to you is the difference between biblical grace-based Christianity and moralism. As much as I appreciate, I'm going to get in trouble for this, VeggieTales, but you don't, do you know the founder of VeggieTales repented for making VeggieTales? Do you know that? Phil Vischer, after years of trying to become the Christian Disney, if you read his biography called Me, Myself, and Bob, okay, it's a great book, by the way, he has an encounter with the grace and gospel of Christ and realizes that all his Christian literature and media he made was an actual Christian, Christian literature and media. 
See, because simply telling kids to be nice and be loving because God loves you and because the Bible says so is not biblical Christianity. Calling people to try to do moral things because the Bible says is called moralism. And that's no different than any other religion. What is biblical base, base, grace-based Christianity? What do you speak of, Sam? Well, I want you to say with me these two words. Just as. Repeat with me. Just as. One more time. Just as. Every single command in the New Testament, you just add a just as to it. Let me give you some examples. First passage. John chapter 13, 34. Read this with me. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as. And you should love each other. If you take out the second half of that verse, that's moralism. Hey, love each other because the Bible says to. Hey, love your brother because he's your brother. Love your sister because I said so. Because it makes God happy. That is not biblical Christianity. Love each other just as Christ has mercifully, patiently loved you. That's what motivates and strengthens and empowers you to live the supernatural lifestyle. Because if you really take the, the claims of this Bible seriously and the calls of this Bible seriously, it calls us to love our enemies. Yeah. How do you love your enemies when they're your enemies? Right. Well, you love them just as God has loved you while you were an enemy. Amen. That's what transforms your heart. And I want to challenge every leader in here, every counselor in here, every Hume staffer, if you are giving them commands without the just as, you are not leading them to biblical Christianity. You're leading them to moralism. And some of the students will do really well with that moralism, and they will outshine the rest of the students, and they will be able to produce it on their own strength for a season, and they're going to feel, a lot, they're going to feel high and mighty and better than other kids, and they're going to be leading themselves to a, a, a path of self-righteousness and pharisaicalism. Next passage, Ephesians 4.32. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Say that with me. God, through Christ, has forgiven you. How do you find in yourself forgiveness towards people who wrong us so deeply? Well, just as God has forgiven you through Christ Jesus. You see the difference? Do you guys see the difference between this and just moralism? Do this because the Bible says so. Do this because it's the right thing to do. Do this because God wants you to be nice because God is nice. This is radically different. This is do this as God has done this to you over and over and over again. Next, next passage, final one. There's, there's so many in the New Testament. Would you read this with me? Therefore, accept each other just as Christ accepted you so that God will be given glory. Other translations in the ESV, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Listen, there are students in your school, in your church, that you want to avoid. They're different from you. They're annoying. They're socially awkward. They may smell. They may come from rough backgrounds. Or they just may be just a personality that you don't like. And if you do not welcome them and love them and care for them, then you are showing a disregard and a misunderstanding of how much God has welcomed your smelly butt. <laughs> and how awkward and how messy and how sinful you are. See, when you receive that God has done that for you, what that does is produces a heart of mercy. And so you look around, you see kids sitting by yourself. You're like, whoa, whoa, let me love them and welcome them. Because what? Just as Christ welcomed me. You see a kid who comes to your youth group that you just, it just strikes you wrong. We all have different prejudices in our heart, different people who just strike us wrong. Different, different backgrounds, different things that we just, we have background with that kind of person. They remind us of someone and we just, mm, I don't like them. I want to avoid them. You avoid that person. Thank God that God didn't avoid you, right? Just as God welcomed you. See, this is what Jonah doesn't understand. Bringing you back to Jonah. Jonah doesn't understand how much God has been done for him and therefore his heart is hardened towards others. He's not getting that God's, what God want, did in him, he now wants to do through him. Verse 3, see Jonah's response to God's mercy. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Remember I told you that he's so quick to want to die? He's very dramatic like a toddler, you know, doesn't get what he wants, and he's like, oh, I just want to die, you know, just like so quick. 
to want to die. But, but what did I talk to you guys about the, yesterday morning? What is an idol? Well, one of the signs of an idol is that if you lose your love, this idol, then you have a hard time believing that life is worth living for. Oh, nice. What is an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you only what God can give. And so Jonah's idol, he has many. He idolizes his nation, his nation's security, his nation's pride over the well-being of the Ninevites. And he cannot imagine living or being happy without his enemies being wiped off the map. And yet, when you consider it, God could have picked any prophet. Why did he pick Jonah? Did he pick Jonah because Jonah was the best of the crop? Did he pick Jonah because he was like, yo, Jonah has the best heart. I'm going to send him. No. God is merciful to Jonah. God chooses Jonah to send this message and bring revival to this whole city because he wants to work in Jonah. He's, he loves Jonah. He's patient with Jonah. He's merciful towards Jonah. He wants to expose in Jonah. One of the most loving things God can do for us, expose our idols. Because it's only until our idols are exposed that we could actually have a true relationship with God. Just like if I have other lovers competing in my heart for my wife, it's only until I renounce those lovers, those lovers come to the surface and I'm honest about my conflicting affections, that I can actually have a real relationship with my wife. Similarly, Jonah cannot have a real, life-changing, authentic relationship with Yahweh until his idols of, city, of nation and of, of national pride and his own pharisaical heart is exposed. So one of the most loving things God can do for you is take you through trial to expose the very things that keep you from him, keep you from a real, authentic relationship with him. And that's what God is doing. God is merciful to Jonah. Verse four, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? I, I, I love the tender heart of God here. He doesn't just rebuke Jonah. He just draws his heart out. One of the, 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 the marks of a skilled counselor is, is you don't just give answers. You draw out the heart. And God, Yahweh is patiently going to ask Jonah multiple times, hey, is your anger justified? Is it right for you to feel angry over my mercy towards other people? And he just draws him out. And what does Jonah do in, in light of this patient question? He ignores him. He ignores him. He just goes on. Verse 5. So Jonah ignores him. In verse 5, read this with me. Jonah went out of the city. Wow, that was a little rough. But thank you for trying. Jonah, Jonah's great hope is to see God change his mind and just wreck the city, or maybe the Ninevites, their repentance won't stick, and they'll just go right back to their wicked ways. So Jonah pitches a tent outside the city, waiting for a firework show, waiting for fire to come down from heaven and just absolutely incinerate these wicked people. And yet God, what he's going to do is going to further draw out Jonah's heart, expose his priorities that are off, deeply off, through a small series of trials. Verse six. Do you read this with me? And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. Okay, so let's summarize just what happened real quick. Beautiful reading, guys. God has appointed with his power and authority, 
what we call that sovereignty, the sovereignty of God to have a plant to cover him and shade him because of the intense heat. And the first time we see Jonah happy in this story is because he has a plant shading him from the sun. The first time we see him happy. That's what makes him happy, that he has some shade and he's now comforted. But then God appoints with his power and authority, sovereignty, to send a worm to eat the, 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 the roots, the stems of the plant, and the, the plant that was bringing him so much comfort, protecting him from the scorching sun, withers away. And then without the plant, he's exposed, and then God appoints again with his power and authority to send a terrible wind and heat, such a heat that it just makes him want to pass out and faint. So how does Jonah respond? What does he want to do? He wants to die. He wants to die again. What is God doing here? At quick reading, it, it could look like God is trying to bully Jonah. God's like just, just this ruthless bully, just picking on Jonah. Oh, poor Jonah. But what is God actually doing? There's something a little more kind, a lot more, a lot more strategic that God is doing here. God is slowly drawing out Jonah's priorities and helping Jonah see how misplaced his priorities and values are. You see that? He's exposing him from the lesser to the greater. He's showing him that he cares about this little plant, this little plant that he has all this passion for, all this commitment to that he's only known for like a day. You know, have you ever had someone who who's head over heels over some girl or guy, and, then, and, and they're like willing to like rearrange their whole life for this one person, and you're like, man, well, how long have you known them? Uh, you know, 10 minutes, you know, right? Like, this is what's going on here. Jonah has known this plan for just a few minutes, and he is so committed to it, and the moment the plant dies, he's like, oh, I want to die. God's like, do you see that, Jonah? Do you see how your heart is out of whack? Your values are completely out of proportion? What, what does Jonah think? No! No, God! I'm exactly appropriately responding to this situation. I want to die, and that's the rightful response. I care deeply about that plant that I've known, and I named it whatever, and it died, and so I should want to die because it's hot. God continues to reason with him patiently. Verse 9. Read with me. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? If you're reading this, you're, you're supposed to, to kind of laugh and chuckle and be like, bro, seriously? Jonah, seriously? But you see God, God knows and God could just sink and kill this joker. God is just patiently drawing him out. Remember, how can we be patient with each other? Because God, just as God has been patient with us, God is patiently drawing out his heart and merciful to him. Verse 10 and 11. And then this, that's the end of the book. Then we read this with me. Okay, well, let's, finish, let's finish strong. This is the last verses of Jonah. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plan, though you did nothing to put it there. Hey, congratulations. You have read through an entire book of the Bible. Raise your hand if you've never read through a book of the Bible. Straight through. Liars. One, one, raise your hand if you've never read through a book oh, until this point. An entire book of a Bible. Just straight through. <laughs> a book in the Bible. Straight through. Only two of you? You guys are liars. Oh my gosh, we got to do another sermon on lying. Okay, well, whether, wherever you guys are at, congratulations. You read through the entire book of Jonah this week. All right? Read it when you get home too. You'll see even more. I've gone through this book so many times, and every single time I see more of God's heart in here. There's so much more, guys. So what is God doing? God is showing him again and again, patiently, how misplaced his values and priorities are, how much he misunderstands God's mercy. God's basically saying, hey, Jonah, do you, do you feel like it's right for you to be so furious over the death of a plant? And Jonah 
emphatically says what? Yes. Yes. So God's like, okay, I'll, I'll play by that. If you're that angry about a plant that you just met, that you didn't even create and do nothing for, does it make sense for me to have compassion on 120,000 people? See what God's doing? Hey, hey, Jonah, don't you see how you care for that whatever plant? Doesn't it make sense for me to care for 120,000 people? And then the book just ends there. That's, that's the last line of that book. It ends like that, abruptly. It's the only book in the Bible that ends so abruptly, so unsatisfying. It's like, the, it's like a movie where the hero dies for himself and no one else, and then the movie just ends. And you're just like, what just happened? <laughs> Give me my money back. There is no satisfying end. And I think that Jonah is written like this in order to throw the ball in your court and say, are you going to be like Jonah? How are you going to respond when God shows mercy to his enemies? How will you respond if God calls you to your enemies? See, I, I think this is speculation. We don't know who wrote the book of Jonah, but I think that Jonah was part of writing it or at least widely shared his story and was very brutally honest about how petty and ridiculous and how sinful and wicked and hard and cold he is. So much of the fact that he, he, he shares all this because eventually he re, he's redeemed. I think eventually God transforms his heart through this patient counseling process, drawing out his heart. And because Jonah's heart is transformed, he then widely shares about his exploits and what God did in Nineveh back to Israelites. And they eventually write it and it's in the Bible to show us, to show Israel and to show us how not to be like Jonah, how not to respond to our enemies in God's mercy and grace like Jonah does. So then the end of the book is just throwing it in your court. What are you going to do? Are you okay with God showing mercy towards those you despise the most in life? I mean, think about it for a second. Let's bring it home. Is there anyone in your life who's deeply wronged you? Deeply hurt you, betrayed you, abused you? You, got, you, you have that person in your mind? How do you feel about God extending unfathomable mercy and grace towards them? How do you feel if their life is blessed even more than you? And then what if God goes even so far to call you to be the one to bring mercy to them? What if God calls you to go to them and share the gospel with them? Calls you to be kind and loving to them? Just ask. God has been kind and loving and patient towards you. See, this is the other end of God's grace that is so scandalous and offensive is that God's grace towards us calls us, demands us, compels us to then go share that grace and mercy towards those we don't want to. And if you find your life is one where you characteristically avoid those who you do not like and avoid those who have hurt you, then you do not yet understand the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus here. You tell me how spiritual you are at your youth group and how much you do, and you avoid the kid who sits by himself, you do not understand the grace of God. You know your Bible verses, you've been going to church your whole life, you may even give tithe. If you don't love your enemies, you don't understand the gospel. You're just like Jonah. There is no such thing as having a real relationship with Jesus that does not affect the way you relate with your enemies and those who hurt you, those who are not like you. I want to highlight the difference between Jesus and Jonah specifically here. Jonah, at the end of this book, is waiting outside of Jerusalem, hoping to see the city destroyed. But Jesus, at the end of his life, as he's journeying, journeying towards Jerusalem on a donkey, you know, if you've seen different movies, you see him kind of just like smiling as they put palm trees down. But if you actually look at the Gospel of Luke, He's not just passively riding this donkey. He's weeping. Look at Luke 19, 41 with me. Just, but as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. This word weep is not like manly tear that you quickly wipe. 
This is the same kind of word that you use if you lose a loved one. The kind of weeping that happens when you are in such grief, your heart is so broken that you do not care what anyone thinks, that you may rip your clothes because of the grief inside. You have to do something to to express the absolute heartbreak inside. That's how Jesus is feeling towards Jerusalem, and I dare say that's how Jesus feels towards us when we sin, us when we reject him. And look at his heart. How I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. God, Jesus wants peace for them. But now it's too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. And you see this also in Matthew in a different account. Jesus is like, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets. I just wish I could take you and just hold you. Hold you like a, a hen holds its chicks. This is the tender heart of God. Jesus is so not like Jonah. While Jonah is outside the city wanting the city to be destroyed, Jesus is outside the city wanting it to have mercy, crying and weeping over their sins. You see how sweet our Savior is? He's not like Jonah. He weeps over your sin. No matter what your culture says that God is like, you cannot accuse God of not feeling, not caring, not being empathetic, not being broken. Jesus is so different from Jonah. He weeps for his enemies. He doesn't despise his enemies. And this is the great love and compassion that changes us if we receive it. I've been alluding to Romans 5.10. If you're taking notes, you can just write this down. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. If you understand that you are an enemy of God when you reject him, when we live our lives for our own glory, and yet God loves his enemies and died for you, then what that does is it creates in you a heart of love. You remember in the very beginning of this, uh, the first session, I said that this book gives us a cure to racism? You guys remember I said that? This is how. When you understand that you are an enemy of God, and yet God loves his enemies so much that he dies for his enemies, and then not just for, dies for them and forgives them, he invites them to be his own children and reign with him. If you understand this scandalous gospel, What that does is it creates in you a heart of mercy and love towards people who are not like you. And that ends racism. No matter what policy the administration comes out with, no matter what anyone does, that will not end racism because it can't change a heart. Political policies can help, but they cannot change hearts. The gospel changes hearts. And if your heart is a heart full of prejudice, judgment towards other people, you start sitting on these passages, you start meditating on the gospel of God, gospel of Christ towards you, and what that does is it gives you a heart of mercy. Now, I need, to, I need to land the plane here. So, listen, you are called to be a better Jonah to the world. I want to encourage you to write down in your notes, if you're taking notes. <clears throat> guys, you need to take notes. Girls are great about taking notes, and I know it's just like a thing that guys are like, man, I don't, I'm a guy, I don't take notes. You're dumb if you don't take notes. All right? So if you're like, I'm dumb, then don't take notes. Seriously, you're going to forget a lot of this stuff. I forget this stuff. We need to take notes. We need to review these realities, these truths, because we leak. We forget these things. Oh, this is a little, I should have said that the first day. All right. All right. Romans chapter 10. I just want you to jot this down. We don't have time to talk about it, but God is calling you, some of you, to be an agent of mercy towards those of you who are your enemies, those who you do not like, those who have wronged you. And so I want you to spend some time, even as you ride back from camp, to meditate and pray and ask God, who are the people that you have called me to be a Jonah to, except not like Jonah? <laughs> who have you called me to be merciful towards? Who is there, someone in your life that you need to start praying for and asking God to open up door for you to share the gospel and to love and to serve those, and especially ask God, is there somebody who deeply have hurt me? Especially that person. And then now I want to make a quick call. For those who of, you, of you guys who are on the fence, I know that some of you, or many of you here, are still like, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing, Sam. I don't know about this whole Christianity thing, Sam. I have questions about if this Bible is true. I have questions about God's character. How can he be a good God in all the suffering in the world? How, how, how do we know Jesus is the way and the truth of life? Why not other ways? There's a lot of legitimate questions. How do we understand gender and sexuality and same-sex attraction and all the different questions we have in our culture about sexuality and everything going on? Those are all good questions that you should wrestle with and you will wrestle with. But here's my challenge for you. If you are on the fence about God because of these different questions and more, do not let that be your excuse to do nothing. If you are not sure about God, you better know. You better put the work in. 
Don't be that kid who's just like, you know, we don't even know who wrote the Bible. We can't trust it. I saw this documentary on the History Channel, so I don't know. And it's just your convenient excuse to ignore the claims of Christ. If you're not sure, then make sure you know. Do the work. And at the end of it, if you don't think it's real, then that, hey, at least you have the integrity to go, that down, go down that path. But don't be that kid who just says, has this one little um, objection that everybody in the world has had sometime in their life. And just think that that gets you scot-free. God is not going to be like, well, it's okay, you questioned me then uh, because you had this objection. And then, fine, I'm going to give you mercy when I come up. It won't, there will be no mercy when Jesus returns. So if you have questions about God's character in this, you do the work. You talk to a counselor, youth pastor, say, hey, help me understand how I trust the Bible. Help me understand how I know God is real. You do the work. This is the most important question. If you are wrong about this question, you are wrong about everything. If you miss this, you miss everything because everything is built off of this. And so if you're in that place of skepticism, man, God bless you. I'm so glad you're here, but you do the work. Don't just let your skepticisms and your objections just give you, give you a whole pass where you're like, oh, you know, I don't need to you know, take any of that serious because I have these objections. Well, you do the work and try to figure out if those objections are legitimate. And there's so much good stuff out there ever before to search about what's true. Talk to your counselor, talk to your pastors, do the work together and figure that out. Okay, now I, I have to cut like everything else in the sermon, okay, because I go too long. But I just want to challenge you with this. We're going to have a couple of screenshots that go up that you could just take a picture of. If you're a leader, if you're a counselor, you can take these shots real quick. Come up with a plan. Satan already has a plan for you to fall right when you get home. I know there's some of you here who are like, man, I want to grow. I want to keep growing. I don't want to lose what I got this weekend at Hume. You do not have to lose it. You can actually go deeper. Okay, so here, here, here's what I would say. What would you do if you were super committed to become an elite athlete? Go to the Olympics. What would you do? You would rearrange the way you eat, sleep, do every single thing in your life. And the, the thing is you have to do with Christianity with, with your relationship with Christ, is that you do not go back home and try to figure out a way to fit God into your life. No, no, no. You go back home and try to figure out how to fit your whole life around God. You see that difference? Let's talk about it afterwards. I promise I, I'll find you or you find me, okay? Do not try to figure out a way to fit in time with God when you go home. Try to figure out how to fit your whole life around time with God. This is a total reorienting about your relationship with Jesus, and with that mindset, go forward and start making plans, okay? So how do you replicate human your normal life? You can't take the whole garden gnomes home. You can't take all this stuff on the stage. But you, what you can do is you can replicate different boundaries. A lot of you guys have been not on your phone as much as before, right? And you know what that does? That clears up your mind. That gives you focus. You got to have a plan about your phone. Your phone is one of the greatest enemies for your spiritual flourishment because there are people out there who are trying to disciple you. TikTok, Instagram, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm on that stuff. But what I'm telling you is that there are, there are billion, multi-billion dollar corporations that their whole aim is to get your attention on here as long as possible to make money off of you. They're trying to disciple. They're trying to shape your values, try to shape your attention. And so you need to have a plan with your phone. I, this, I'm going to just tell you what I do. You don't need to do it, but this is what I do. I have a timer set with my wife. I don't have the password where I can only be on social media 15 minutes a day, and then it times out. That's, that's for me. That's what's healthy for me. For you, it could be 40. For you, it could be zero. I don't know. I'm just saying you have to have a plan because all this stuff is trying to shape you. All of us here are being discipled right now. You're either being discipled towards Christ or discipled away from him. And the world is trying to disciple you away. So you need to have a plan with your music. You need to have a plan what, what you take in and what you take out. Here's one more slide. Oh, okay, yeah, it, what you need to take away. So take a shot of that if you want to. Oh, there's too much here. I, I say all that to say this. Guys, there's so much more to following Jesus. And I can't give you and I shouldn't give to you. That's why you have the local church. That's why I love Hume Lake because you, have, you come as a church. You dive into your church. You submit to your leaders. You follow them. You ask them, tell me how to follow Jesus. Show me how to follow Jesus. And you come up with custom plans with your leaders for your own background, your own context. All of you have different messy contexts, different strengths and weaknesses. You come up with custom plans on how you can flourish and grow. Okay, now I want to end with this. Two, two other screens you can just take a shot of real quick if you want to. These are some recommended books if you want to go deeper, further. Those are some helpful books. There's hundreds more, but those are some places to start if you want to take a shot of that. Now, let me end with this. Let me end with us just rejoicing on how Jesus is better than Jonah, and we'll be done.
Jonah ran from his enemies. Jesus ran towards his enemies. Jonah wants his enemies to suffer and die. Jesus suffers and dies for his enemies. While Jonah is asleep to escape and ignore reality, Jesus is greater and sleeping at peace because he holds the whole world in his hand. While Jonah gets up scared for his life, Jesus is greater and wakes up at peace and calms the disciples down and calms the storm down. While Jonah needs to be sacrificed to stop the storm, Jesus just needs to speak a word and the storm stops. While Jonah is the guilty one who is sacrificed for the innocent lives of the sailors, Jesus is greater for he's the, no, no, sorry. Jonah is the guilty one dying for innocent sailors, but Jesus is greater for he is the innocent one that is sacrificed for all the guilty ones. While Jonah turns his face from God and flees on the cross, temporarily God turns his face from Jesus so that in that moment of punishment, he can turn his face towards you forever in favor. And remember how the king of Assyria took off all his royal symbols to humble himself with sackcloth and ashes? Jesus also, the king of the universe, humbles himself, takes on the form of a slave, takes on humility to serve us, and to die for us. And then while Jonah eagerly looks for the destruction of Nineveh, Jesus eagerly weeps and longingly looks for you to turn to him. This is the goodness of Jesus in the book of Jonah. Let's pray. Father, there's so much here, and, and I just trust that your word will do the work and you will accomplish what you want with these students. I do pray for each one of these students in these, these churches that they would sh- strengthen one another, that they would grow deeper in love with you, that what you uh, has, have begun at this camp, that, that you will continue to flan, fan into flame and finish. Would you um, help the leaders have wisdom on how to disciple these students, and that these students would just go after you together and pursue you together and strengthen one another and hold each other accountable and fight together for your purposes. I pray, Lord, that there will be many, many Ninevehs that, that you will call them to and reach out to that God, you would empower these students to be bold and courageous and, and, and be able to share the gospel, even, even in their weaknesses, even in their sin, and even in their struggles and their fear of man and all the different things that we all struggle with, that you would empower them to be that light to those in their life who've hurt them the most. That in doing so, that that gospel would just start moving like a fire, a wildfire through their communities. The gospel of grace would flood through their churches and through their communities, through them. And God, what you do did to them this weekend and before, I I ask that you do through them. And you'd help them live and rejoice in your gospel. Thank you, Lord, for this weekend. And Father, if there's anything that I said from this pulpit that was not from you, that was not true, Lord, correct us and help us know better. But everything that is true, let it transform us and deeply change us forever for your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.